Hello, entertainment law nerds, enthusiasts, and aficionados, and welcome to the Denton's Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal Podcast. I'm your co-host, Bob Tarantino, and today I'm not joined by my friend and colleague, Caitlin Choi. So I'm a little bit adrift. I'm at sea. I'm not entirely certain how to proceed. But the good news is, while Caitlin is unable to join us, I'm joined by my other friends and colleagues, Jim Russell and Ken Kraft. In this episode, we'll be talking about the recent decision in the Grosvenor Park and Arc Productions case and what it highlights for entertainment financing in Canada. Before we get too far into our discussion, our usual disclaimer. The contents of this podcast do not constitute legal advice, so please reach out to us or other counsel if you require guidance on your specific legal matters. So to talk about the Grosvenor Park and Arc Productions decision, we're joined by my colleagues, Jim Russell and Ken Kraft. Both are partners here in the Toronto office at Denton's. And one thing I noticed, Jim, when I was looking at your bio is that you are a partner in the business law, the entertainment law, and the banking and finance groups, which seems a little scattershot, but I applaud your, the breadth of your experience. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Bob. One day I will figure out what kind of lawyer I want to be, and then I'll narrow down that bio. Right. Uh, and Ken Kraft, who I like to consider sort of an honorary member of the entertainment law group. He's, he's one of our bankruptcy financing folks who at least I call whenever I have trouble. Um, so Ken, you're a member of our banking and finance and restructuring insolvency and bankruptcy groups. Welcome. Thanks. Like Jim, when I grow up, I'll figure out which group I want to belong, but for now I'm happy to multitask. Awesome. So I like to think of you guys as like sort of Jim is there at the beginning of the financing process, like when there's money. And then Ken, you're sort of there when the money has disappeared. And so there, you guys are sort of like the, alpha I'm the undertaker. The yeah. You're the undertaker. Yeah. Like you're the alpha and the omega of entertainment financing. Um, and so we wanted to get you guys on the podcast today to talk about the Grosvenor Park an ARC Productions case. And, and for those interested, the citation for that case is 2020 ONSC 5651. We wanted to get you guys on the podcast to talk about the case because I think it highlights some really interesting things for Canadian producers and financiers who are involved in the entertainment space. And just to give listeners a bit of background into what happened in the case very briefly, Arc was a film animation studio who was routinely hired by producers to provide uh, animation services in connection with films. And Arc had a some kind of credit facility with Grosvenor Park. Uh, and Grosvenor Park had advanced something in the neighborhood of over $20 million uh, to Arc Productions. And so third-party producers would contract with ARC Productions to provide those animation services. ARC would then apply for tax credits uh, in relation to the services they had provided. And then they would remit those tax credits back to the producers. ARC had entered into a few different types of contractual arrangements with producers with respect to the tax credits. In some cases, the contracts provided that ARC had transferred all right title and interest in the tax credits to the producers. In some cases, the contracts provided that the producers were being given a trust over the tax credits. And, and ultimately, the dispute in the case came down to the fact that there was a little over a million dollars in tax credits 
that ARC had received and ARC had gone into some kind of insolvency receivership um, situation and the receiver for ARC applied to the court for direction um, as to how to disperse those more than a million dollars in tax credits. The wrinkle in all of this, of course, was that Grosvenor had provided its credit facilities and had registered a security interest uh, pursuant to a general security agreement. And so Grosvenor was arguing that it was entitled to those tax credits and a variety of producers were, were arguing that they were entitled to those tax credits. The ultimate conclusion that the court came to was that it was in fact Grosvenor that was entitled to those tax credits by virtue of the fact that it had registered its security interest under the PPSA. So I'm wondering if, if Ken or Jim, if you could jump in and, and perhaps give your view on what the takeaway for both producers and financiers, or, or maybe they have different takeaways in, in light of this decision. Jim, why don't we start with you? Thanks, Bob. Well, the case is quite fascinating um, because it shows you sort of three different approaches to how to uh, how a producer or a copyright owner would try and claim the tax credits that were part of its financing. Um, the the more interesting thing for me from the outset, though, is the fact that you have on the one hand the three producers who were laying claim to the tax credits by virtue of hiring Arc as a service provider. And then on the other hand, you had Grosvenor having a claim over the tax credits as an interim financier. And one of the things that we, we try to advise folks to keep an eye on is whenever there's a possibility for a double dip or a competing claim on the same chunk of collateral. And I think what happened in this case is the producers, you know, they, they were all quite sophisticated parties and they all had their own different way of creating a production services agreement or a supplier services agreement. So there, there was no indication that they were first timers when it came to the structuring. Um, but what they seem to have done is they, they felt that they could confidently just structure this as a contractual entitlement. And then when Grosvenor Park came along with um, sort of a secured party entitlement, um, that's where the, the intersection and the, and the double dip kind of created the tension. Um, so one of the key takeaways for me is if, if you're hiring someone up here to provide services and you think that tax credits or any other kind of rebate to which they're entitled is going to form part of your, either call it collateral or call it your contractual entitlement, um, you're probably in the best situation to just treat it as a loan and once you get your head around treating it as a loan, however you may re represent it in your contract, by treating it as a loan, your next thought should be, well, I should take security over it. Great, and so, so Ken, is that really the nub of the case then, or, or the nub of the decision that, that if, if you do have an interest in these tax credits, that your best approach is to register security interest under the PPSA by mean whether that's through a, a GSA or, or some other the copyright mortgage, maybe not a copyright mortgage, but some form of security uh, instrument that then gets registered. Uh, Bob, I, I think you should take a step back. Oh, well, I agree with everything Jim said. I, I think there was a more fundamental uh, problem with how these deals were structured um, and didn't even require anything beyond the existing paperwork in order to register an interest. Um, at the heart of the transaction, the 
producer was acquiring the tax credit that ARC was entitled to. That is an assignment of an account, an outright assignment as was drafted in the documents. What seemed to have been missed here is that transaction, even if it was an absolute assignment, when you're doing an account, must be registered under the PPSA for it to be enforceable. It didn't actually matter whether or not there was a purported grant of a security interest. Um, that in itself required assignment, uh, registration uh, under the PPSA. And that seems to have been missed um, at least by two of the three parties. Um, one of the financiers actually did register a financing statement. And I, I think that's because they knew that it was obligatory. Um, that's kind of, and, and there was no explanation offered on the other side why they didn't do that. So then, registration is, is really the best course of action. I mean, it, it, regardless it's not of even the, the best course, it's, it's the, mandatory. If an account is being assigned, even outright. So if somebody buys an account, you must register under the PPSA for it to be enforceable. So I'm surprised to hear that. That sound, makes it sound to me like there should probably be a lot more registrations under the PPSA than there currently are. I mean, I yes. sort of, as a, as a simple entertainment lawyer, I sort of think of the PPSA as something that gets engaged when we have a financing. Right, when there is something kind of either colloquially or strictly termed a security interest. But it sounds like what you're saying is that in a variety of different non-financing transactions, when there is a, a, a like a sale or a, a, an alienation of, of uh, title, those should be registered uh, under the PPSA. So when the PPSA defines security interest very broadly, it says substance of the transaction, but it then it goes on and there's a whole nother category which mandates registration. That's an absolute assignment. So if somebody buys an account owed that of another party, that mandates registration. And that, that's in essence what the transaction was. Whatever tax credits ARC was entitled to were being bought wholly assigned over to um, the producers. And, and that in itself is, the rest of the case in a sense is all obiter because that was sufficient to decide it. Um, it offers very useful insights in terms of the issue of what is a grant of a security interest in substance. And we can obviously talk about that because it's very interesting. But you, know, you could view the case at its narrowest and the judge does rely on that in his decision that there was an absolute assignment of an account and there was at least for two of the three, no registration. And Ken, my, my understanding is that when you say it's required, it, I, I had always understood that that meant that in order for the assignment to be enforceable against third parties, it had to be registered. Is, is that what you're getting at? Correct, for it to be enforceable against third parties and here you had the receivership which had in, imposed, which effectively created Whose rights is it enforceable? Grosvenor was the third party that now had acquired rights. And Bob, I think that goes to your point. So, so from a practical perspective, uh, most of the producers in the Canadian market um, will only sort of deal with their account re accounts receivable in trade when they're doing an interim financing. 
But I think that for other types of transactions, for example, if you're doing an asset sale and you're, or if you're doing a securitization where you're selling or factoring your accounts receivable to, to monetize them, those are all situations where you would normally see um, that kind of PPSA registration. What, what's intriguing is that in the production services context, um, everybody that's part of the transaction knows that those tax credits directly or indirectly are forming part of the financing plan for the project. Um, but, but because it doesn't strike people as an absolute assignment that would sort of trigger a registration, um, it's, it's not uncommon for people to forget about it. Um, as Ken points out, it, to, be, to be opposable against third parties, you need to file. Um, but it, it's not uncommon for people to fail to do it. Um, what, what is more common is for people to try and build in a debt construct um, where their cash flowing production costs in the production services agreement and the tax credits are a way to quote unquote repay um, that kind of interim or that kind of loan construct. So that's where we normally would see it. I, I think that's probably the architecture that they followed um, was to have a, a debt repayable to them. Um, and I just, Bob, my understanding is that they, they had sort of inadvertently um, signed an unduly broad subordination in favor of Brogner. Um, and even though they had, they had perfected their lien, they had sort of unwittingly um, given it away. Um, which raises another practice point, I guess. And what practice point is that? Well, I think if you're going to if you're going to be asked to sign a subordination agreement, um, the 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 challenge for all of us is that practically everybody's always under the gun to close as quickly as possible. And when somebody serves up a subordination letter that kind of has the look and feel of something that you've signed or your client has signed a hundred times before. Um, you tend to just kind of bang out the signature um, so that you can get your, your deal closed. And, and I think the best practice is if you're, if you're representing a pre-existing creditor that's being asked to step aside, I think the key is to make sure that you, you always bury somewhere in the subordination what your client's priority collateral might be. Right. That's great. I think those are really valuable insights. I think, Ken, I'd like to ask one question, uh, which you might be able to speak to. So we noted at the outset, this is a decision of the Ontario Superior Court. Um, you know, one of the great things about Ontario is that it is a location for financings, which are commissioned and produced from all over the world, um, you know, including other Canadian provinces and, in, you know, primarily from the United States. To what extent does this result and the lessons that you and Jim have both outlined, to what extent is that uh, sort of, you know, um, congruent with the positions in other Canadian provinces and for American, you know, commissioning producers or financiers? Well, the, the provisions of the PPSA are in this area pretty consistent across the country. So I would think you would get the same result um, had this issue arisen in any other jurisdiction in Canada. I am not as familiar with the UCC in this area, but I believe it is similar, um, but I, I can't, uh, confirm that. Understood. But the lessons sound like they are, are generally applicable regardless of, of the location of the financier. Uh, in other words, if, if the debtor is in Ontario, uh, they should be doing the two things that have been highlighted in our discussion, which is 
register your security interest and be careful when you're signing a subordination to ensure that if to the extent you have priority collateral interests, that those are carved out and, and reserved to you, the, the subordinating party. Absolutely correct. Great. Can we just, can we just talk a little bit about um, the, the judge's uh, fairly interesting attitude towards the trust language that apparently showed up in the contracts? Yeah, um, let's have that conversation. So, so just so as, as many folks who sort of, you know, deal with financing agreements may be familiar, one of the sort of catch-alls that, that people like to throw in these kinds of uh, financing agreements is they'll, they'll have the tax credit claimant, that is the service provider, um, agree that if they receive proceeds of any of the tax credits, that they'll hold them in trust uh, for the producer and remit them over that sort of payment over provision that we've seen a million times. Uh, what was intriguing about the decision, and and Ken, feel free to jump in, but I, there were a couple places where it sounded like the judge basically said, yeah, the, that language would be great, except all you had to do was register a PPSA financing statement, so you can't use the trust language as a saving provision after the fact. Um, and and I, I found that a little curious because I, I had always thought that if you were sort of holding um, assets in trust for a third party, that though they wouldn't be considered your assets in an insolvency. So I, I was just wondering what, as an insolvency practitioner, what you may have thought about that part of the decision. So it's, it's a very good point. And, and here's where contract law and secure transaction law uh, as sort of codified in the PPSA, you know, clash. Um, you know, as a matter of contract between two parties, I, I can agree that I'm going to hold something in trust for you. Between you and me, that's completely enforceable um, in terms of, of, of rights. Um, the problem is what the PPSA says, right, is no third party has a way of knowing that you and I have this arrangement. Um, so if Bob comes along and, uh, you know, lends money and takes security on my assets, he has no way of knowing that I'm holding things in trust for you, Jim, at this point. And what the PPA say is intended to do is doesn't matter because you didn't register against me, even though you could have. Um, and Bob has come along and has lent money in good faith, looked at the registry, and guess what? There's, there's no registration in favor of Jim against Kent. So um, the judge is basically saying, you know, it, it may be valid between you and me, but it's not valid as against Bob. And, and that's the substance of the substance test in terms of, of, of rights. So that's at one level. There's also another level which applies in insolvency proceedings, which is even if the trust was valid in terms of the legal construct, is there an actual trust at law? Um, and that requires right, separate funds. You know, here the receiver got a bunch of money um, from various sources, including tax credits. It's all kind of commingled in you know, ARC's bank accounts at the end of the day. So there would have been another question that doesn't ever have to go there because you just said uh, it doesn't matter to me for the reasons we just discussed. But there's also a question whether there'd even be a valid trust at law um, because the money was in a, a commingled bank account. Um, so that's a whole nother issue, uh, which would have raised a whole bunch of complexity in an insolvency proceeding. Uh, but he didn't even have to go there for the reasons that we just discussed. Thanks for teasing that out. Cause that was, I, I like Jim, I think that 
the the dismissiveness with which the judge seemed to treat the trust construct uh, struck me when I first read the decision. So I appreciate you taking the time to to explain uh, why, in fact, that the decision was correct and my reaction was wrong, as usual. And does any can anyone tell me what a quist close trust is? Yes, that's a trust. That's a trust. Uh, that comes from an English case from the House of Lords called Quist Close, House of Lords Court of Appeal, and it deals with where a trust fails, um, where, where money is advanced for a specific purpose, and the purpose is frustrated. Um, the courts sometimes impose what's called a Quist Close trust and require the funds to be returned to the person who advanced it in the first place. Um, it is part of Canadian law, but the circumstances in which it uh, is applied uh, is very limited. Thanks. So not a lot of people know this, but Quist Close was actually, by sheer coincidence, that was actually the CPD um, kind of validation code for this episode. Like, you know how you have to kind of give like a <laughs> thing to the law society? It was Quist Close. It's incredible. So anybody who listened all the way through to here, good on you. Now you know the, now you know the answer. And Ken, just as, just as a matter, because I, I haven't personally not seen a lot of these kinds of decisions from um, the insolvency world. Um, do you get the sense that the producers, and this is going to be maybe too strong a word, do you get the sense that maybe they were penalized for, for trying to sort of close the barn door after the horse had gone out? Like the, the, the tone really seemed to be um, that you guys missed the PPSA filing. So no matter what else you pointed to, this judge was basically going to say no dice. Like, do you, do you think that there could have been some other kind of construct they could have brought to bear to try and be successful? Or once they failed to file, was that pretty much it? Yeah, once they failed to file, that was it. Um, and, and, it's, and, you know, and, and they failed to file for two reasons, right? There's the whole issue of the assignment of account, which we just discussed. Um, and then we had the issue, of, then there was the whole other analysis, which is you know, whether this was in substance a lending transaction, um, which again, I think the judge kind of basically said at the end of the day, guys, you're saying they would have had to borrow money if they didn't do this. So this is just borrowing money another way. Um, and you know, that just seems to be you know, in sort of, you know, uh, don't lose the forest for the trees, you know, producers. Excellent. Well, thanks, guys. I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through that decision and, and through the nuances there. Um, and so again, just for folks who like to have their universe condensed down into something that's tweetable, it sounds like register your security interests, register your assignments of accounts, and pay close attention to your subordinations to make sure you don't inadvertently give up something to which you should re remain entitled. So Jim, Ken, thank you. Uh, unfortunately, Caitlin wasn't able to join us today, but I know that she uh, would want to extend her thanks as well uh, to you guys for taking the time and, and, um, and enlightening our listeners as to what they should be learning from the Grosvenor Park and Arc Productions decision. Thanks again. Uh, thanks to all our listeners, and we will see you on the next episode of the Dentons Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal podcast. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.